Open with me this morning to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, the first seven verses this morning. We'll start reading, though, at the beginning of uh, verse 9 of chapter 2. Before I read that, I wanted to get us in the proper thoughts here. You know, today... We have piles of books around the church building that were donated. But a lot of people have piles of books at home. They're not necessarily like these, which would be good books for a minister or an elder. But we have a lot of self-help books. Now, not all self-help books are bad. Some of them have sage advice that can help you. I lived for more than six months with bleeding blisters on my feet. Couldn't figure out what the problem was. Finally found a book that said, you know, cut out all the food except for certain things that are always safe and see if it's your gut leaking and add the food back one by one. Well, three days later, my feet had stopped bleeding. Within a week, they were healed. It was useful. There was good information there. But a lot of, there are a lot of self-help books on life, on health, on your family, on work, on self-improvement, pretty much everything under the sun. Some of them have sage advice. Some of them are nonsense. Simply waste your time and money. I think most um, diet books are like that. Uh, Sometimes their ideas are, you know, provincial and unhelpful. You you wonder where they got them from and where they live. Uh, Some are really quite evil and will bring you harm. Sometimes their ideas and advice are the thinking of their generation. I remember when I was young, my grandmother told me that if her children hadn't eaten an egg by dinner time, they were given a raw egg and a glass to drink because eggs were so important to child development. Uh, By the time I was in school, oh, fat is evil, cholesterol is evil, eggs are evil, you shouldn't touch them at all. Now they've come 360 And they're starting to say children need good fats, they need cholesterol, they need eggs and whole milk and things like that. Because it's necessary for the development of the brain and the development of the body. And if you go on an ultra-low-fat diet, your children are not going to be healthy. Uh, There's a lot of that provisional stuff where people think something one day, they change their mind, they change it again. And, you know, the ideas of last generation are not always good for us. When you read these books that kind of book, you really need to apply your own wisdom, your own experience, your own common sense to try and figure out whether there's anything helpful or not and to protect yourself. And I would say this is even true when it's written by Christians, even by godly Christians, because, you know, there's no man perfect. And some men may be very sound in one area and a little loopy somewhere else. And so you always read everything with a grain of salt and care. The problem becomes, people often take that attitude to the Bible. They treat the Bible as if it was written by fallible men who were writing in a different time, writing in a different culture, and we need to use our wisdom to decide what's applicable for us and what's good for us and what's not. Uh, The problem is, that's not what the Bible says. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
You know, the Bible is not man's will. It is not man's writing. It is not man's ideas. But writing as men carried along by the Spirit of God. Paul explains this in more detail, you remember, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where he says all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is part of his creative breath. His Spirit wrote it. And that therefore... It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All Scripture is useful for us. All Scripture is true for us. All Scripture is profitable for us. Now, because this is the work of an all-knowing God who works out all things according to the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11, we can have confidence in the scripture. Jesus says, I tell you truly, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or one dot, not the least stroke of the pen or the smallest letter will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Matthew 5, 18. You know, we can have that level of confidence in scripture. When somebody calls themselves a Christian, they can never consider scripture to be the same as the writings of fallible men. It is the work of the one true, living, all-knowing, all-powerful God. He breathed it out, knowing full well exactly where culture would be, exactly where society would be, exactly where knowledge would be and science would be at every point throughout history until the end. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing needs to be corrected. Nothing needs to be changed. He says exactly what he means, and men don't get to change it. Why am I belaboring this point yet again? Well, I was very excited to get all the commentaries. I have like seven of them stacked this high now in First Peter. And the first one I picked out, my favorite Romans commentary, is part of that set. And I started reading it on this section yesterday because we got them Friday night. And it says that Peter is expressing the social expectations of that period on this text. And I went... Ugh. Okay, he just gave up the inspiration and authority of the Bible. It's not God expressing what he wants to say. It's Peter expressing what society believes. And I had to really shake my head and grind my teeth and use that as inspiration to drive me on in my finishing up of my sermon. And I did. You know, that said is considered orthodox, not liberal. This is not an uncommon proposition today. The Bible has things that are provincial and we can ignore them. That is not left, far left liberal thinking. It is really mainstream thinking in the churches today. But as you can tell by knowing me and hearing what I just said, I don't think that's biblical or acceptable before God. However, we're all tempted at times, I think, to, when we find something in the Bible that really grates against our skin and our nerves, to want to say, well, maybe that's, you know, for them. And maybe I can do something a little better for me. And that comes up in this passage a lot. Now, I'm not going to try to cover everything there is to talk about concerning husbands and wives. I'm going to try to stick with the little bit of text we have in these seven verses and only those ideas. But even so, it's hard for people who have embraced society. They don't remember that we were part of the kingdom of Satan 
And we have been transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God, the kingdom of the Son that God loves. We are, we are to put behind all those things of the old man, all those things of the world, all those things of the flesh, and live our lives now for God. So I will do my best to stay on topic today and stay within the text. I was going to do men and women differently, but I decided there's enough back and forth that I should cover them at the same time. Hopefully we won't run too late. But we all have lunch, so we should be good. Uh, So let us read the passage. I'm going to start at verse 9, because this is really all laying the groundwork. Um, The arbitrary point where they put verse divisions and chapter divisions is not always helpful. Because clearly, chapter 3 starts off with the word likewise, referring back to what the past previous sections. So we'll start at verse 9 of chapter 2. This is establishing who he's writing to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness to his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it to you if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And now for today's lesson, likewise, as the servants, as all subject to the government, as servants subject to masters, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or of the clothing you wear. But let the adorning be of the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that as we work through the book of Peter, First Peter, we find things that are a struggle for some of us in different ways. And as we've come to another of those passages, which can be a bit painful, we pray that you would help. Bless, Lord, that my words would be clear and faithful and true, and that the hearts of my hearers would be open to receive the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, it starts off with likewise. Likewise, the wives be subject to your own husbands. Now, people who get distracted on the word subject start talking about own husbands. And yes, a wife should be subject to her husband, not to other men, not to her father. But when she's married, she has to subject herself to her own husband. But the idea of being subject, it has the same intent as the previous passages we just read. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or, it continues on, Verse 18, be subject servants to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The reason given for this is we are sojourners, we are exiles. And in verse 12 of chapter 2, we are commanded to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The good deeds are the obedience to God's will and the pleasing of him as well as submitting ourselves to those in authority over us, doing what God requires of us in that regard so that we don't give them an excuse to hate us and despise God. Uh, All of this comes back to that first verse I read, chapter 2, verse 9, that we are his people. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And we're doing all of this so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. Remember, we are not living this life for our own good, for our own pleasure, for our own happiness, for our own joy, for our own fulfillment. We are living this life as a royal priesthood. We have a job. That job sometimes requires us to suffer unjustly, Sometimes it requires us to face persecution. 
Sometimes it requires us to give up some of our rights for the glory in the kingdom. And whether it be submitting to the government or submitting to a master or a boss or submitting to a husband, it can be difficult at times, but we are doing that not because it makes us happy, not because it gives us fulfillment, but because it glorifies God and shores up our testimony about who God is and what he wants. Assures up our testimony to the unbelievers around us. So as everyone is to be subject or in submission to the government and in slaves in submission to their masters, so wives must be in submission to their husband because that is the order God has ordained as the creator. Man is the head, wife is in submission. We saw this in Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. The marriage relationship was instituted by God. The headship was instituted by God. The, sub- the submission was instituted by God in that relationship. And therefore, it says, he says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, we have a lot of anxiety against this in the church, and the PCA is currently being torn in two over the issue of women teaching. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, 12-14, don't, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority or over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For as Adam was from first and then Eve, and then Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now it's an interesting passage because Adam's sin was certainly the greater because he wasn't deceived, he willfully and deliberately sinned. But he's saying that that is the order God has established and part of the reason for it is the consequence of her sin. And again, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, this is clearly stated order that God has put in. It is not men being chauvinists and wanting to assure their own authority. It is not men grasping for power and wanting to crush women under their feet. It is, God said, and whether... You know, like me, you were raised in a place like Massachusetts where feminism was the state religion in my youth. And I didn't know any better until I became a Christian. You know, it doesn't matter. God has said this is what it's going to be. And it is up to us then to submit ourselves to his teaching, to his requirement. Ever since the sexual revolution, and that's really where this starts, you know, women's liberation and feminism come out of the sexual revolution. Ever since this has been, this began, this teaching of the Bible of headship, male headship, and God as a man, has been hated. And women submitting first to their father and then to their husband, it, it's been hated and raged against. They call it toxic masculinity is how they teach it in schools today. But they're rejecting God and his word and refusing to submit themselves to him. The Holy Spirit through Paul reinforces the husband-wife relationship 
In Ephesians 5, we'll look at this again when we come to men. But it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Pretty much the same thing Peter says. As to the Lord, he adds. Their submission is not um, just being polite to them, but being submissive, being under their subjection, just as we are under the Lord. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And it's hard to get more explicit than Paul. It's one of the reasons Paul is so popular, is that you might not like what he said, but it's hard to turn it around and stand it on his head. He's clear. In a, down in verse 33, he says, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So part of the submission is, of course, respect. In Colossians 3, 18 and 19, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so we have this teaching reconfirmed here in four different places. Calling on wives, and there are more, plenty more, but four that I've listed that make it very hard to say this is not the teaching of the Bible. And no, this submission is to be as to the Lord with respect. We'll come to the husbands later. But it's not simply being kind, not simply being respectful, but submitting to their authority as, as, as their authority is established by God. Not by way of eye service or begrudgingly or with a surly attitude, but as you would submit to God himself, to Christ himself. That's important. Now, the first thing you will ask me, and I haven't asked this. We won't tell you that it, my own wife asked me this too, but we won't say that. What if the husband has flaws? And some ask sincerely, you know, what do we do with a bad husband? Uh, others ask hypocritically, trying to find a way around the commandment. But what if he has flaws? What if he's distracted by work and by life, not taking proper care of his household? What if he's obstinate and won't listen to reason? What if he sins? What if he's not 100% devoted to God? What if he's not even 10% devoted to God? What if he isn't a worthy head of the household? What if he's inferior to his wife, spiritually, mentally, physically, whatever? What if he's harsh, cruel, evil? What if... He's not even a believer. Well, he, Peter says here, so that even if some do not obey the word, the husbands they are to be in submission to include arguably a small minority who do not obey the word. Now, some have said, oh, Peter's writing to women who have unbelieving husbands, not to believing husbands. No, that's not the case. Husbands and wife in this passage are both being written to those who are believers and are presumed to have a relationship between a believing husband and wife. And the instruction on submission is to her believing husband or her husband of any kind, even if he might be an unbeliever. Now, this is about our conduct in the world, before the world, that the world sees 
It is about our testimony as we live as strangers and pilgrims, not just our glorifying God with our life and doing what he's commanded, but in showing that and living that in this hostile world that hates God so that they see the truth whether they like it or not. And so this is about our conduct, both husbands and wives. And Peter is insisting that every husband, even an unbelieving husband, must be submitted to. Now, just as with slaves, even the evil masters must be submitted to. With the state, the state was evil. I don't think they knew a good one. They must be submitted to because God has established that requirement. That authority is his. Uh, The grammar here is well captured by the ESV, indicating that the believing husband really isn't the norm. I mean, the unbelieving husband. It's not the norm, but it's an exception. If you're in that exceptional circumstance where not only is your husband worthless and evil and corrupt, but he's an unbeliever, you still must submit to him. That's his point. It gets mistranslated in a few other verses. But this is the command, and guess what? It's not always pleasant. It's not always easy. He talks about this more in, in the passage we did last week, you know, when he talks about Christ. Christ's submission to the command of the Father, Christ's submission under the wicked authorities who murdered him, and how that all went. It's a sacrifice. But it is a sacrifice pleasing and honoring to God. And that's how we need to look at our life. You know, a lot of times, take work for instance, you know, when we have a bad boss and he's causing us grief, we want to crush him and make him feel it to reform him. You know, that's what we want in the world. But what does God say? You know, submit to them and honor them because they are in authority over you and respect them. Now, if they're doing wrong, we don't follow, but we try to reform them while honoring and respecting and obeying them as possible. And the same then is true for wives. The implication here is that the husband is more than an unbeliever. He is living a life in disobedience to the word. It's fairly strongly written that the husband does not submit himself to God. Uh, We know that if he's living an actively disobedient life, which is what's implied by the text, that it would be very distressful to a believer to have to deal with that man. It would be even more distressful for a wife to have to submit to that man. And yet that is what God is telling them to do, to submit even to this godless man who is living a life of active disobedience to God. It's hard. But we're told, you know, not, not only do we submit to the good and the gentle, but to the unjust when it comes to servants and masters. And I think the same would be applied to governments and to husbands. Since this is God's will, since he has established the order in the husband-wife relationship, and since there's no authority except the authority established by God, and God has established that authority, that wives then must submit. 
A husband mindful of his own instructions to him found in God's word isn't going to be a brutal and totalitarian ruler. Uh, Husbands don't always just issue commands as their only communication with their wife. Husbands should make requests, have conversations, discuss matters in detail. Uh, Not everything has to be, I'm the head, do this because I say so. Uh, That would be a very harsh husband, which is condemned in Scripture. Um, Seeking advice, discussing the matter, coming to mutually arrived conclusions is good. Uh, Nevertheless, we see the submission of the wife in the way she deals with all of that, in the way she discusses, in the way she expresses her opinion, uh, and in ultimately the way she acknowledges her husband as head of the house. Because that is what God is looking for. You know, the man doesn't need to be totalitarian, but the woman needs to be still in respect and submission to him. And she needs to demonstrate the difference to his leadership and understanding that he is the head of the house appointed by God, is the one who has the final responsibility before God. Uh, we'll talk about Sarah when we come to her a little bit, is her example. But he says, one of the reasons for doing this, even if your husband is an unbeliever, you know, first is because God has established that order, but second, there's the possibility they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, the King James and some other translations supplied the word the here, I think inappropriately. It says, if some do not obey the word, meaning the Bible, They may be one without, and in the Greek it's just without word. Now, we don't say that in English. They don't have an indefinite article, an A or an AN. And so we provide that without a word. The idea being not that they're converted without the Bible, which is kind of what the King James makes it sound like by putting the in there. Because we know faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. That, that translation is questionable because it implies disagreement with this. Uh, what we're talking about here is what we saw back in verse 12 of chapter 2, what we just read, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What we're talking about is there being one by the conversation of your life, by you know, I hate to call it lifestyle evangelism because that's come to mean something different now, but by you living out the godly life and being a demonstration to the pagans of what God expects in his children. The unbelieving husband should see the conduct of his wife. Now, the contrast to this we find in the Proverbs. I'm sure most men know the Proverbs by heart. This one, Proverbs 19:13. A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is like a continually dripping of the rain. Drip, drip, drip. You know, we're talking here about the wife is not nagging her unbelieving husband day after day that she needs to become a Christian. She is not nagging by even sharing the gospel day after day after day after day. He's saying in this case, actions speak louder than words. Are you, you know, if the wife is saying, we must submit to God, 
And he is saying, yeah, but you don't submit to me and God has commanded it. Where's her testimony? But on the other hand, even if she's only told him once about God, and she's showing in her life day after day after day that God is first in her life, and that means that she'll submit to him, even though she, he's a jerk, that can be the thing God uses to open the man's heart and mind to receiving the gospel. God uses means. That means is usually is scripture for the final leaving, but he often uses men as means to bring conviction of sin and bring desire for him to their hearts. And what Peter is telling us here is the believing wife, by submitting to her husband, is being a testimony of what God wants. And even the godless know what God wants. They try to sear it out of their conscience, but they really know. They understand this order that the husband is head of the house, the wife is the submit one to submit to him, and they see it in Scripture if they've heard it at all. But it's part of who we are. It's part of our makeup. And they can see that and understand that and know that their wife is glorifying God, even though society may have it backwards. Uh, I remember hearing somebody talking about a translation of the Bible they were in the mission field that they had had to deal with, where it was translated the other way around. You know, husbands mean submission to your wives, because that was their culture. They were a matriarchal society. And I said, you know, I look at him and I'm like, how can you use, and he says, you can't. You know, you got to treat it like we don't have a Bible. If they've done that, is there anything else corrupted? You know, it was terrible. Even though society is wrong, men will know them. And when they see a wife submitting to her husband, even though he's an unbeliever, he can be convicted in his heart that God is right and that this is just and will glorify God through faith. Now, we're not exclusively talking in this passage about unbelieving husbands, though, and we need to shift ourselves back to what is God really looking for in the wives? How is the wife to live her life? And... It comes down to respectful and pure conduct. That's really true for all of us. But here he's talking about husbands and wives, and the wife's conduct should be seen to be respectful and pure. Uh, the submission of wife to husband is respectful and pure, just as it is with God. And to God, this is a pure thing. It is not corrupted, it is not adulterated. Uh, the word respectful here, though, I'm going to retranslate, fear. This is the same word we talked about before, phobos. It's used in the fear of the Lord. It's used in verse 18 of subject, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, with all fear, not only good and gentle, but the unjust. This is not the fear of terror, because Peter later says you shouldn't be in verse Six, do not fear anything that is frightening to the wives. This isn't that kind of fear. This is the fear of the fear of the Lord. Not wanting to offend them, not wanting to dishonor them or disrespect them, and being afraid of doing that. 
because it would be unholy and unjust. And so wives should be respectful or fearful of and pure in their conduct and not letting their adorning be the external adorning. What is the true beauty and the true desirability of a woman? If you look at young Christian girls, if they're you know, using their clothing and their jewelry and their bodies as the way to allure a man to get a husband, they're not going to be happy long-term with that husband if they're a believing girl because their husband is likely to be focused on the wrong things and may not even be a believer. What are you to use to be beautiful? Uh, well, what is desirable? What is right? The things of the world please men. Men are very much pleased by the desire of the eyes, seeing, which is why I think the braiding of hair and the clothing and the jewelry is mentioned specifically. And they can be swayed by those things. But if a woman is getting her self-worth from the beauty of her hair braiding, from the jewelry she owns, from the clothes she wears, I remember... I was giving a girl a ride to work when I was in co-op at college. She blew her entire paycheck every month on shoes. She showed me her closet, very proud of them. She had a hundred pair of shoes in her closet at, at the university. And it's just like, you know, what is your self-worth coming from? Which shoes you can wear? Uh, it, you know, it, the self-worth that she, they should have is their worth in Christ, is it not? And the self-worth that a man desires, there's, you know, a man who desires only to have the most eye-pleasing wife, what's going to happen? Well, think of Donald Trump did that when he was young. And he went through a number of wives because, you know, five years down the road, they weren't as pleasing. And there were young women who were more pleasing. And he would switch the wives out. And Solomon also did that. He chose what? He had a thousand of them. Well, 700 wives and 300 porcupines, as I once heard. <laughs> Child trying to explain the text. Didn't know what a concubine was, so he substituted porcupine. <laughs> anyway, and it comes, yeah, it's a great joke. But you know, he had a thousand women chosen for their great beauty, their desirability. But that is not what God wants. Now, I should take a moment here to talk about clothing. The NIV adds fine to it, but there's no adjective to clothing. It's just clothes, using clothes. Uh, The reason that's important is because some people in history have used this text to say that braiding hair and jewelry are sin. But to do that, then you've got to say clothes are sin, and since it's not fine clothes or sexy clothes or anything like that, it's just clothes, then clothes would be sin. And... Now, running around naked would not be the appropriate response here. So this text is not forbidding those things. What it's talking about is making those really where your self-worth comes from and how you judge a woman. Judge a woman by her hair, her clothes, her beauty, her jewels. No, that's not how we're to judge people. That's not how we're to judge a woman. What's happening, though, is it's forbidding, really, the, the, the distraction of those things over against 
what's really wanted, which is the heart. Remember, God looks at the heart. First Samuel 16, 6 and 9, Samuel's looking for the new anointed of the Lord. And he comes to Eliab and thought, oh, surely this is the Lord's anointed is before me. And the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance. The Lord sees the heart. Now, we should not be judging women, and women should not be judging themselves by outward appearance. It doesn't matter if you've gotten old and you have wrinkles and gray hair and a few pounds. I remember when I went to seminary, the, the friend who led me to the Lord called the seminary and asked if it would okay, be okay before he did this. But for my 30th birthday, he sent balloons. They were black. And then there were some of those silver ones that had some really nasty things written on them, like 30 in the pounds to prove it, <laughs> which I had at that point. Yeah, um, you know, we get old. That's not what provides our value. That's not how we should be judged in the church. A husband should not pick his wife based on how pretty she is and how well she dresses and how much jewelry she has. And a woman should not be so fixated on those things that you know, she has 27 Botox shots and she has silicone injected in her lips. Who's that famous actress who was so beautiful when she was young? She got, no, the different one, Angelique Jolene. And have you seen her now? Her lip is like ish big because she had stuff done to it and fill it to make her look beautiful. And as she ages, it hasn't kept up. Ooh. You know, that's not the value. The Lord says we look at the heart. And when you think in our text about the woman, what are we looking for in the heart? A pure heart. And what is the pure heart? What is the thing that makes the woman beautiful in our text today? Submission to her husband. Is this woman going to submit to her husband? That's the thing of beauty. Does she have a peaceful and pure heart? That's the thing of beauty, not the outward things that men so love. The way to find a husband and keep a husband is to cover all of those things and find one who is attracted to your heart as a godly woman. Harder to find, rarer. So is a woman who will do that. But that's what we should be looking at. Sarah here is used as a reference and a godly example of the holy women of old. Not just in the way she dressed and everything, but think about her submission to her husband. Oh, Sarah, hey, the Lord spoke to me and told me to leave my homeland and my family and travel for months across the desert and we're going to settle in the promised land. Let's go. What? Are you stupid? Shouldn't you have consulted me first? No. She just went. She submitted to him. Think of all the strange things the Lord had him do by faith. Even down to the promise of an heir. All of that she had to submit herself and follow him. It couldn't have been easy. You know, Abraham talking to God, being told by God, and seeing God, and all of the things you know, that he experienced was probably much easier for him, and he's called a great man of faith. 
and a friend of God. But if you think about Sarah following along after him, oh, what are we doing now? <laughs> but she submits and she follows and she does. And she called him Lord. You know, she did not do it begrudgingly. Ah, I got married off to the wrong man. Wish I had picked a better husband. I wish I had picked a husband who would stay home and make money and make me happy and let me live in comfort in the city. No, she lived in a tent and went from place to place where she did not know and walked on lands and died in a land where she didn't even, her husband didn't even own a place to bury her. Uh, you know, it was a tough life, but that was submission to his authority as the head of her house, as the head of her marriage, as her husband. And that is that point. What is the opposite wife in the Old Testament? Probably Job's wife, right? Job 2.10, 9 and 10. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? You know, one of the things, the differences between the, the woman who is all about her beauty and all about what she gets and who thinks love is how you make me feel is that when you end up sitting in the ashes, scraping your sores, that kind of woman is going to say, curse God and die and go on and do her own thing. Whereas the godly woman who submits to you as a husband is going to be right there beside you, ministering to you, caring for your needs. I've told you the story before about that poor man who started having seizures, who was you know, a youth leader in the church, full-time ministry, and she left him. Oh, this man's just going to drag me down. I can be better without him. Right? The promise of feminism. You're better off without your husband. And she left. That, I think, is really what this passage is all about. You know, the value of a woman is not in outward appearance, but is in the heart. And the heart is seen, most especially in this passage at least, by her willingness to submit to her father and to her husband. And that's really where a husband should judge a woman. Is she in submission to her father or in rebellion against him? If she's rebelling against her father, the first authority in her life, you probably guess she's going to be rebelling in marriage. Doesn't mean you can't marry her, but it means that's a problem you're going to have to deal with. Uh, marriage really is, though, a two-way street. And we don't just have all of these people talking about women and wives and never mentioning husbands. Husbands only get one verse, but it's pretty loaded. Likewise, husbands. So our responsibility before the Lord, before the pagans, before the unbelievers, as witnesses, as a chosen nation, a holy priesthood, here are the husbands' needs of obedience to God. Uh, first, we should remember, we just read Paul's writings on a number of other places. Continuing in Ephesians 5 for a moment, starting at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her and by washing the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself, and no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. The point being, the place of the husband is to love, to cherish, to care for, to grow, to live with his wife in that sort of a manner, where seeing to her sanctification, seeing to her needs. We read verse 33 of that chapter before, you know, let the wife, or let each of you love his wife as himself. And then Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So we're told in our text, husbands, live with your wives. And in my translation, the ESV, it says, in an understanding way. Uh, the RSV and the NIV have lived considerately with your wives but that's really a terrible translation. It literally says, live with them according to knowledge. And I would rather, instead of interpreting that, they just translate it. According to knowledge, what does it mean? Well, the idea is that having knowledge which is beneficial to that relationship and beneficial to the wife, live with them according to knowledge, about them, seeking their sanctification, their general good we just read, nourishing their wives, cherishing their wives. What kind of knowledge would this be? Okay, this is where all the guys get punched right in the nose, myself included. First, God's purpose and principles for marriage. What does God want us to be? You know, it's not our choice. This isn't a game for us. What is God calling us to do? What is he telling us to do? but also knowledge of our wife, our wife's hopes, our wife's dreams, desires, goals, knowledge of our wife's frustrations. We live with them according to that knowledge. What frustrates them? And I've met people, you ever known them, they love to push your buttons and the only thing they ever do in life is push everybody's buttons. You know, this is the opposite. How how do I not innocently and in, in, in unintentionally push my wife's buttons. Live with them according to knowledge. Knowing her strengths and weaknesses. Right? Not just physical. As I laugh, my wife calls me all the time. Could you get that off the top shelf? Can you open this jar? It's like, dear, your grip is stronger than mine now that I have Parkinson's, but I do it anyway. Uh, not just physical, but emotional strengths and weaknesses spiritual strengths and weaknesses. I had to find out very early in our dating that my wife does not like too many choices. I need to be the one who figures it all out and gives her a few choices. If I just talk about boiling the ocean with her, her eyes go, <laughs> steam comes out of her ears, and it's all over from then on. Now, you have to understand the the... Husbands are obligated to understand, to know their wife, and not to be pushing buttons, but to be nourishing, cherishing, sanctifying them, seeing them grow in all areas. A husband who pursues that kind of knowledge and lives with his wife according to that knowledge will certainly be blessing his wife in his marriage and himself very greatly. Uh, those are hard things, and I don't think many of us do it, because where does that knowledge really come from? 
Well, first and foremost, a regular, careful, deliberate study of God's word. Then the one that gets us into trouble. Okay, guys, you know, bring up the shield. Uh, unharried times of private fellowship and conversation as a husband and wife. Right? That is the only way we're ever going to know their hopes, their dreams, their dreams, their desires, their goals, and their frustrations. The only way to know that is to actually spend time and talk to them. <laughs> okay, ladies all laugh, men blush. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for us. Um, but to live with them according to knowledge is to understand really how to be a proper husband for them. Uh, wives get angry, women get angry with the whole, oh, wives submit to their husband because they hate it. But men are not to be, you know, the, the lords who rule the house with an iron fist and the wife is barefoot pregnant and in the kitchen and doesn't talk unless I've asked her to. No, right? That's sin. The man is there to serve his wife as her head, as Christ serves the church. And the next one causes even more trouble, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Uh, I saw one of the commentaries I was reading, people apparently find being called a vessel very offensive and is degrading to women. Uh, you'll notice it says weaker vessel, which means husbands are also a vessel. Why are you getting upset with that? We're being called the same way. You know, modern women wage, wage war against the whole weaker concept. And I've been very tickled and laugh every day when I read the news about lawsuits over transgender sports because the men are winning, pretending to be women. Yeah, you know, it's biology. The, the man's body is designed differently than the woman's body, and the man is going to be a little superior physically to women on average. Uh, well, certainly... The best of women would be better at sports than I ever was, even in my youth, in just about every sport, everything. But on, on average, right, a man could easily overpower his wife, not usually the other way around. And that's why she's being called the weaker vessel. Uh, but also weaker in other ways, not just physical, but often emotional. Men are far less emotional than women. It's harder to sway a man with emotion than a woman. Uh, some of that is biology, again, we, hormones. But uh, I, I read once a suggestion that if men had to raise babies, more babies would die, and that God has given them a different emotional perspective in the world, in part at least, to care to, so they could care properly for the children. You know, the children want to do something like, uh, you know, they want to climb the rock wall. It's like, I'm with you. Go for it, his daddy. And mommy is like, they're going to fall and die. What are you, stupid? <laughs> um, you know, we have a different perspective. And that also leads, though, to when it comes to brute force emotionally, women are often weaker. And that needs to be taken into account by men. If we're going to live according to knowledge with our wives, we need to realize that we can hurt them emotionally much more easily than we would be hurt. 
And we can hurt them unintentionally if we're not careful because they're not like us. They're different. And that needs to be taken into account. Uh, Men are warned not to be harsh for this very reason. Men, Men respond to harshness often by stepping up and getting it done. Women respond to harshness by being hurt a lot of times. Uh, It's just difference in the way we're wired by God. And so we're to show honor to them as the weaker vessel by accommodating who they are, taking that knowledge into account in our life with them as a husband. Uh Uh-oh, I've run out of time. Uh, By calling him the weaker vessel, by the way, he's not being derogatory. Uh, We... We read in Galatians 3, 27 through 29. For as many as are baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For all are one in Christ. You know, Peter and Paul, the Holy Spirit has no problem with saying the order of authority is man, husband, wife. The order of salvation is equal. The order of eternal blessings is equal. You are sharers, mutual partakers. You know, women who think if I'm not the leader, I'm being discriminated against. If I'm not the leader, I'm number two. I'm inferior is wrong. I don't know whether how many of you have ever led in like the business world. It's not always good. I would often rather not be a leader. As an engineer, I really didn't want to become a manager. A lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, a lot of aggravation. It's not that you're superior. It's that your place is different. And it's not that a woman is inferior. It's that her order and authority is different. Uh, We need to get that idea out that we're, you know, women are second to men out of our minds because it's not true. Women have an equal share to all the blessings in Christ. There is no distinction. There's no discrimination. And that is why husbands are called not to be harsh and why they are warned that you need to live with your wife according to knowledge so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, the prayer hindering here is what's talking about in Proverbs in particular. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine: The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. The Lord disciplines those he loves, Hebrews 12. Chastises everyone he takes as a son. If a man in his marriage relationship is refusing to live properly with his wife, God takes that as sin and is threatening essentially to hinder his prayers, not to hear them, not to bless him. A very serious consequence. (coughs) So anyway, since I need to wrap up, in this passage, which is indeed breathed out by God, it is as timely today as it ever has been, and is as hated today as it ever has been. It tells us how we as believers are to live our lives before God and before the godless so that he may be glorified. Specifically here it says, wives to live in subjection to their husbands and husbands to live in according to knowledge with their wife. (coughs) And we are to do this all properly before the godless so that God might be glorified. Let us pray. (coughs) 
<coughs> Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we know, Lord, that when we live according to your word, that life goes better, not just because we avoid unnecessary consequences, but that when we live according to your word, we're living according to the design that you have placed on the world and on the world order, and that things work out much more smoothly and much more properly. And we know, Lord, that it is hard for us to live, especially in this matter of husbands and wives. It's hard for wives to submit and subject themselves to their husbands. It is hard for husbands to take into account all of the knowledge they have and the needs of their wives and to care for their souls properly. And we pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts from this word, that we might be more active in seeking out doing what is right before you as husbands and wives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.